This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Bostonians would welcome some relief from the cost of rent, which is second only to New York City. Reacting to this broad concern, Michelle Wu campaigned and won her mayoral election unapologetically supporting rent control as the preferred approach to price increases, adding additional eviction prevention measures for tenants. Since her election, the mayor has not backed away from her promise and has placed her rent control plan on the February 15th city council docket for a public hearing. Owing to the fact that rent control was outlawed in Massachusetts in a commonwealth-wide referendum in 1994, the mayor will need the approval of the city council, the state legislature, and the governor's office before any such policy can take effect leaving elected officials to consider how a policy that was rejected in the past can be reshaped to garner popular approval in the present. How should Bostonians think about the likely effects of rent control on the future of Boston? And how will the contours of rent level restrictions change as the idea must navigate between the demands of its most ardent activists and the need to cultivate a healthy real estate market necessary for a thriving city? My guest today is Greg Vassell, Chief Executive Officer and President of the Greater Boston Real Estate Board. As the head of the oldest real estate board in the country, Mr. Vassell advises his professional members who range from new property developers to those improving Boston's oldest residential buildings on how best to meet the housing needs of Boston residents. Well aware that the demand for quality affordable living space far exceeds the supply, Mr. Vassell will share with us his views on how rent control will affect the long-term costs for renters and discuss how these policies will also affect the experience of aspiring homeowners, future developers, and current homeowners alike. When I return, I'll be joined by Greater Boston Real Estate Board CEO and President Greg Vassell. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by the Chief Executive and President of the Greater Boston Real Estate Board, Greg Vassell. Welcome to Hubwonk, Greg. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, I'm pleased to have you on the show. Uh, I had gotten a press release uh, that you had uh, sent out this past week, uh, and you were going to talk about rent control. It's a topic we've covered in Hubwonk uh, in earlier episodes. Uh, in the past, we've talked with economists who study the issue uh, all over uh, the world, frankly, and all over the country. We've talked with historians who said, well, look, we've had this thing called uh, called uh, rent control until 1994 when we um, uh, had a statewide referendum to ban it. So here we are again. It's uh, in front page news. is top of uh, mind for many people. So we're going to visit this um, issue of rent control. And you are the head of an organization that has a lot to do with uh, home ownership and home rental. So before we get started, share with our listeners, uh, what is the role of the Greater Boston Real Estate Board? The Greater Boston Real Estate Board is the oldest real estate advocacy organization in America. We were founded here in Boston in 1889 after the Back Bay was filled and Boston was growing and expanding. Um, and at the time, Boston was a peninsula. But by filling the Back Bay, we suddenly got a lot more developable land so that the city could grow and expand. Um, so we're, we're set up in five different divisions. We have commercial divisions, which basically finance um, and provide brokerage. Um, development costs, both residential and commercial, uh, management, and um, and also um, rental housing, multifamily development, uh, and multifamily management as well. 
So, so you really got a finger on the pulse. You've got uh, different divisions uh, talking about everything from, from commercial home ownership to, to rentals. Uh, and your members are effectively uh, the people who facilitate those rentals and sales. You, you, your, your members thrive on a healthy real estate market in Boston or greater Boston. Yes. And, and in fact, I think of it this way. Whenever you see a crane in the sky on a real estate project in Boston, you can be sure that we have multiple members from our different divisions that are involved in that project. Indeed, that's one of my favorite animals, the building crane. You know, though I live in an old part of the city, it's a real pleasure to see uh, so much development, so much uh, growth uh, and so much health uh, in, in the city. So let's get down to business here. We're, we're talking not in academic theoretical terms. We're talking about real proposals made by our new um, mayor, Mayor Wu, uh, to, that she ran on and was elected on uh, to promise to uh, impose rent control here in Boston again. Uh, it's a long, lengthy process to get there, but let's start with which kinds of properties, as you say, you represent a whole range. What kind of properties are uh, being proposed to be affected by this 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 new proposal? Uh, it would be rental properties. It'd be multifamilies. Uh, it would be anything that was six units or more that was not owner occupied. Um, this was very carefully crafted to exempt. Um, certain people, especially if you look at some of the city councilors that will be voting on this, they are property owners that own less than six units. They own multifamily units, but some of them own less than, so they would be exempted. You know, rent control is an insidious policy, and it's a way for a politician to sell hope. This plan was crafted specifically that way to try to convince people, hey, we can keep your rent stagnant and static is what they are. Uh, this is a very uh, familiar concept whereby um, a, a politician uh, passes laws that affect someone else's property. Um, but for those people who either who are listening, who own property or who rent in units that are six units or more owner occupied, why should um, uh, someone care that uh, the mayor's you know, perhaps well-intentioned effort to stabilize other people's rent? Why should, if it's not my unit, why should I care about someone else's unit? Because it, in, in a very on, the, on year one, it'll be great because your rent will be capped. But as time goes on, you will see the quality of your rental unit decline. You will see crime increase. You'll see all kinds of things that are going to impact you. The value of that building is going to fall. It's, it's fallen everywhere across the country where rent control has been, been put into place, which in Boston, over 70% of real estate taxes pay for the operating budget of, of the community. That means less money for police, less money for fire, less money for city services. You're going to see your actual unit not have the money to do the repairs that you need to get your heating system up to grade, have the roof done, have the windows, have plumbers come in. So it's going to sound great. As I said, it's a politician's way of selling hope. But in the long term, it's going to affect your quality of life. So I don't want to go over old ground, but we did experiment with rent control in Boston, Cambridge and Brookline a while back. It was in 1994 that we made it illegal. Um, but I, I don't want to recap old episodes where we covered this. I'll just uh, um, uh, for those who would challenge your assertion that the values of property would go down when we ended rent control. I'll take this from the, um, the, the report from the National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, this is the headline of their research. It said the end of rent control raised the overall valuation of Cambridge housing stock by one point eight billion dollars between 1994 when uh, uh, rent control was abolished in 2004. So in 10 years, it raised the uh, housing stock value by almost $2 billion. Uh, and, but 
I think this is interesting. One billion of that value was uh, in homes that were never controlled in their rent. So it benefited, you know, the, the value of rental stock went up, but the value of those properties that weren't controlled by rent control also went up. I think what I'm trying to uh, make sure our listeners understand is we're all in this together. Rent control affects the people whose rent is controlled as well as you and your neighborhood. You're, we're, we're all in this together. The value of your neighbor's home affects the value of your home. Is that fair to say? You're, you're the expert. Yeah, absolutely. And what, it, what rent control also does is it doesn't provide people mobility from unit to unit because people tend to stay in their rent control units because there's not a new supply coming on. I mean, we've seen this in, in the city. New buildings get built, offer incentives. Tenant might say, hey, geez, they have a new gym. They have a new pool. I want to move to this new apartment building and rent there because there's some really great amenities there that my old building doesn't happen to have. Um, we saw this happen in Berlin, Germany. They enacted rent control right before the pandemic. And what it did was cement people in their units and provided them basically housing for life. But, you know, it, it's sort of a like a, a Soviet style housing for life where you're sort of trapped in your unit. And you can't go anywhere else. Indeed, uh, this is the, the you know, uh, uh, price controls create bread lines. But let's get into the details of um, Mayor Wu's precise proposal. How much would rent be capped? And for our listeners who are skeptical of our claims, uh, they're still able to raise rent. They just have a limit on how much they can raise rent. Do you have the details on how much rent can be raised? Well, it's interesting, Joe, because what they have reported from the administration's perspective is that rents will not rise more than 10%, basically 6% plus CPI with an ultimate cap of 10. But when you read the language very closely that is in the, the, the home rule petition, it, there's some gray language. It almost sounds like the city could potentially, by ordinance, set the rents at other rates, whatever they see fit. Um, this is this proposal is very similar to what was done in Portland, Oregon. And, and what we've seen is since it was put into place a few years ago, the governor's already come in looking to crank down those numbers. So they start the process off by telling you, oh, rents are 10 percent, which sounds eminently reasonable. And then they follow that up a few years later with, hey, we've got this regulatory structure in place. Let's really crank it down on the landlords. And in fact, you're seeing the mayor have trouble with some of the city councilors now that want much, much lower numbers. So it will be interesting to see how that debate plays out over the next couple of weeks. There are also provisions, there's also provisions in there for just cause eviction, which we can get into if you'd like as well. Sure, I want to cover that because I think that might be almost as uh, pernicious uh, an element of the proposal as, as the control of the rent itself. Um, but let's let's talk about um, if if you're in a rent control, whether it's ten percent or four percent or two percent, your rent is in a sense less than it would otherwise be. Uh, now, if I move out and uh, a new tenant moves in, that that resets, right? They, there's no sort of limit on that particular unit. Um, uh, what I'm getting at is, if you, you're in a unit uh, and you want to enjoy rent control, you will never leave. But because if you do. That rent, your the the new rent of the, you know, your future home would not be constrained by this rule. So in a sense, this is why people, as you say, stay in their homes for life. Exactly. And then the problem with as what you just described, vacancy decontrol, is that the landlords will push those new rents to incredible limits. 
Um, what you saw in Portland, Oregon was this very similar. This is this ordinance was was crafted based on Portland. Landlords just went in and said, we're raising rents 10 percent right off the bat because we don't trust the government and we know they'll come back and try to crank it down later. So let's get the money up front right now. So people think, oh, geez, my rent is capped. Those landlords are going to push it to the cap. And, and that doesn't serve anyone. So to be clear, there's no limit on a particular unit's rent. It is just, in a sense, once a lease is signed, it can only go up by so much. But what that initial lease rate is, is not capped at all. Right. Okay. So you, you, we touched on, I think, uh, what I, I think is a, a far more scary proposal. And we saw sort of the, the whiffs of this during the, the pandemic, um, eviction moratoriums and, and the unintended side effects of, of these kinds of uh, you know, I guess I would argue they are uh, infringement on property rights, but landlords couldn't evict a landlord, no matter what, uh, evict a tenant, no matter what. Um, talk about what these provisions are that if a landlord uh, doesn't want that tenant in that unit any longer and the lease is up, he may he or she may not be able to uh, ask that tenant to leave. What are what are the rules in this particular law? Um, th there's there's a lot of detail, Joe. Let me start by just saying this. What this would um, do is create a separate eviction law for the city of Boston compared to the rest of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So to be able to evict a tenant, you would have a different process and you have different standards to, to, that would be under. So the court system would be dealing with two separate standards, the Boston standard and uh, this other, the Commonwealth standard. Now, the, and the problem would be if you do this for Boston, what would prevent Cambridge, Somerville, Arlington, Brookline to come in with home rules and change and and look for their own just cause eviction standard. Right. So, you know, you had to prove that that there was non-payment of rent. Well, what does that proof involve? We've got a tried and true system. Massachusetts housing courts are very pro-tenant now. Is this an even higher standard? How would this work? How would courts interpret interpret that? Um, it affects the quiet enjoyment and potentially of neighbors. If you have tenants that are causing problems now, I'm sure many, many of our listeners have had issues with, with tenants that live next door to them. It's not easy for a landlord to get those tenants out. The problem is the tenant advocates are, have, are typically advocates for the noisy and the, the noisy tenants and the squeaky wheels. The really good tenants out there don't have anybody pitching for them at the state house. And that's the problem we run into. This creates a whole new legal structure. Indeed. I, I think if our listeners are, are having a quiet moment and thinking, well, they probably have some complaints about their landlord, but they probably have for every complaint they have about their landlord, they have a hundred complaints about their neighbors. Uh, and what we are doing here is making it harder to evict someone. Uh, and if someone's not, if you take away that, uh, a threat of eviction, you're incentivizing or disincentivizing good behavior. You want your neighbors to be good tenants. Uh, and if they don't have to be good tenants because the landlord can't evict them, they won't be as good tenants. And you will, as you mentioned, uh, have less quiet enjoyment of your own unit. So you have a vested interest in your landlord having the prerogative to evict bad tenants. Do I have that about right? Yes, absolutely. And and some, you know, there are good landlords and there are problem landlords. Um, but but the most important thing is there needs to be a symbiotic relationship between landlord tenant because the landlord needs tenants. And we've seen this a lot. I mean, there are many landlords out there that are giving their tenants below market deals. Um, and this ordinance would really 
sort of push those landlords to maybe make those deals market or as much as they can get for fear that that there's going to be more more pain coming their way as this as political leaders try to crank these these levels and these percentages down over the years. Now, the advocates of this kind of proposal uh, want to create a narrative between, uh, let's say, wealthy landlords and, and, and tenants who are you know, really just scraping by uh, uh, and, and are powerless. Um, but we've had, again, this is an earlier episode, we've talked about the business of landlording, meaning if you don't have landlords, you don't have rental units, you don't have properties, you don't have a place to live. So we all have a vested interest in people wanting to go into the business of landlording. In general, if we sort of take a step back and focus on these rules, in what way does this affect one's desire either to be a landlord, a good landlord, a, a great landlord, or really take your money and do something else? It creates a nightmare problem um, because, you know, the, as the landlord looks at their building, um, there's tenants there that that they love because they 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 get along they're a great part of the community they care about the building almost as if it's their own they, you know they won't take a piece of litter and throw it in the hallway and then there's other tenants that are problematic and the landlord has a duty to all the tenants to try to make that as as habitable and safe a place as possible um for example if there's no smoking clause in the lease and there's a tenant that continues to smoke these provisions for just cause eviction will make it harder for that landlord to get that tenant who's smoking to stop tending or to stop smoking or removing them from the building. If they're a risk of violence, it makes it harder for that to happen. And, you know, the landlord's also realizing, geez, I've got a problem with the tenant in 2C, but I have a pro, I have an obligation to that tenant in 2A and, and 2D to be able to take care of them and provide a safe and habitable environment. This, this regulatory structure makes it really hard for me to do that. Yes, and indeed, also, again, getting back to the uh, the rent control, if, he, if the landlord's hands are tied as far as to how much he can charge in rent, it also ties his hands in how much he can invest in the building, meaning the building will, uh, you know, he'll be less likely to fix the carpeting in the hallway or the, the uh, paint the hallway new. He, the incentive now is not just to be a terrific guy, but rather he wants to make the property as valuable as possible so as to be able to charge rent for future tenants. Uh, when we take that away, we essentially take away the ability, but also the inclination to make that a beautiful property. Joe, the, 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 this, this is, and this is an interesting point I'd like to make for people too. The city of Boston has put in place uh, this, this building energy reporting disclosure ordinance or BIRDO, and it affects the emissions that a building can put out. The goal is to take Boston totally off of fossil fuels and bring it all electric so that we would have zero carbon emissions. And that's great. We also have the oldest housing stock in the nation, and, and many of these buildings function by the burning of fossil fuels. I don't know how an owner is going to be able to retrofit their buildings, and we all want a cleaner planet. I'm not sure how that gets paid for under a rent control environment. Some of these costs are onerous, and unless you have a new massive government subsidy program for these owners, I don't think that gets done. So these, these targets don't get met, and, and these buildings continue to pollute. So, you know, we have an administration that's pushing the, the Green New Deal and this green agenda, which is great. 
And then we also have these this older housing stock that are you know emitting because they're heating their building so that they're the comfort of 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 their couple of weekends ago we were all freezing, you know. So those yeah. tenants were were cared for by gas and oil fire burners. Um, it's going to be really hard. I don't know how the math works here. It's going to affect people. It's going to affect the quality of the, the heating that they have. Now, Greg, I'm sure um, listeners will think, okay, if we've made it harder for someone to own a rental building. Um, uh, one could imagine, say, uh, I'm, I'm a, a building owner. Uh, I don't want to put up with all these uh, regulations. You've tied my hands. I'm going to now uh, convert my property to condos and, and, and sort of avoid the whole rent control issue altogether. Is there anything in this new proposal that deals with this? Yes, there is. And they've been pretty quiet about broadcasting this, but it would make it much harder for a landlord to convert uh, an apartment unit into a condo unit. So it almost the city would regulate it more stringently. So and they would view that, you know, in terms of losing housing stock, rental stock. So they would sort of box a landlord into keeping a rental unit by making it harder to convert it to a condo unit. So indeed, now we've got that, that everyone says three cheers for uh, the the um, for government preventing my rental building from becoming condos. But of course, this has a trickle down effect, which is it makes owning a building less attractive. It reduces the value of 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 owning a property uh, and therefore reduces the value of housing stock. Uh, what do you think landlords would do to sort of evade this kind of constraint? It'd be very difficult because we would have to see uh, the way that the, the ordinance is drafted. It was all would all be done by regulation. So it would be a very broad delegation of authority to the city and the city would draft regulations to establish how they would regulate those condominiums. Um, the, the, also, the downside, though, here is is it it also removes the, the ability of home ownership. Um, you know, somebody buying a condo also can build equity. And that's a good thing, um, you know, and, and some Condos may be more, more, especially older buildings may be more affordable than, say, some of the newer high-priced condos we've seen. So, you know, we also don't want to disincent the ability of people to build equity through home ownership. That's really what this would do. So, the the next step after a property is converted from, let's say, rental to to condo, those are you're suggesting perhaps lower price condos, ones that middle-class families in Boston could buy and own and build equity. If we prevent rentals from being converted into those, let's say, lower price uh, condos, we're not talking about uh, you know the Millennium Tower, we're talking about brownstones being converted from rentals to condo units. We're again, uh, uh, removing or reducing or limiting the supply of reasonable, reasonably priced condos that middle-class families can afford. Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially in neighborhoods where where um, people of color are trying to buy, trying to build equity, um, you you may be able to quote unquote recycle housing by taking these apartment units and and providing a program where somebody could sort of maybe rent to own um, and condoize them, and that could create problems. I mean, we do have a lot of ARPA money out there that could be available for housing. Somebody could get creative here and come up with programs like that. Indeed. And we know, I mean, just from uh, my own experience, when one is um, buying a condo in a, in a multi-unit building, the question is asked all the time, what is the uh, owner occupancy? We know uh, owners treat buildings better than renters. Uh, the same person, uh, you know, they've got a stake in it, they own it, uh, they're going to take better care of it. So we want a city with a high owner occupancy. Uh, and what this bill 
or this proposal uh, does is discourage effectively owner occupancy. And what you're suggesting is primarily those uh, lower income uh, communities that that really do need this as a, a way to build equity in their own lives. Yes. So effectively, we we're, again we're 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 making the the world a tough place to be a landlord. In other words, uh, we're making it harder to evict. We're making it harder to charge um, market rates for rent. And of course, we're going to mandate that they make their buildings cleaner, all of which costs money. So those people who are considering becoming landlords uh, uh, actually say, "Look, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do something else with my money. I put it in the stock market or or, or something else." Uh, landlording is is no longer a profitable um, profession. Um, uh, let, let's uh, talk about the actual proposal. Where are we? I'll, I'll admit to our listeners, we're recording on uh, Friday, uh, uh, February 17th, and uh, this is really a current events. What, where is this proposal and what would it take to get from where we are now to making all these proposals have the power of, of law? Um, the, the proposal right now is going to be up for a public hearing this coming Wednesday. It's a virtual hearing uh, before the Boston City Council at 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, it's fascinating that it's virtual because, um, you know, the mayor has been struggling a little bit with some of the very progressive members. And typically these hearings would turn into uh, a real festival down there. So they, I think they're trying to limit how the testimony comes in by doing it virtually. Um, after that, it will likely have a what's called a working session, which is sort of unique to the city council and very different, not done in the same way at the state house. It would probably have at least one or two working sessions and probably be up for a vote before the full city council sometime uh, in early March, it would be our guess. Would that be something that would um, voters in Boston know how their city council voted? Absolutely. Those votes uh, at the city council level are recorded. Yes. Indeed. Now, for listeners who are saying, look, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still not persuaded. I, I really think, uh, you know, landlords are, you know, uh, cry me a river. I, I'm, not, I'm not feeling it. I, I think actually I would like uh, uh, my rent to be controlled. Uh, I would like uh, it to be stabilized, uh, to use a, a term. Um, and, and they're not sympathetic to our, our proposal. But to our uh, defense, I'll, I'll run to our defense. What would you propose if you were, I like to call a king for a day, you actually take uh, more than a king, you'd have to be both the mayor and the uh, whole city councilor. What would you do for the very real problem of rent that and you know home prices in Boston that are, you know, let's all accept very, very high. What would you propose to fix that? The only way that we can fix our housing problem is to produce more housing. We need to incent more investors to come in, put capital at risk, and build more. And what we see time and time again across the country is that in markets where rent control is, production is down. Cal in San Francisco, in LA, in New York, we don't have the kind of production that we need to keep pace with the demand. And you do that in Massachusetts. We have members of ours now that are producers of housing, multifamily housing. They say, thank God we don't have anything in the ground in Boston. We will not look to Boston in the future. We will go elsewhere to put our capital to work for us and build because we do not want to be in a, in a rent-controlled environment. It's not healthy, number one. Uh, and it, and it's, it's, it's not going to solve our problem. 
Indeed. So uh, what you're saying is the real reason that we have such high rents beyond the fact that Boston is a terrific place to live is the demand for good housing far exceeds the supply. So every economic system of houses, so we ration by those who can pay the highest price, get the highest price houses, uh, and everybody else is forced to either live elsewhere or uh, endure horrible commutes. Were we to increase the stock of housing such that everyone who wanted a home uh, had one, uh, naturally those prices over time would be likely to fall more in line with the average person's ability to afford it. Yes. So, Joe, let me throw this out to the people that are really still concerned about their rent. A landlord, when they look at their buildings, typically budgets rents to rise probably about 3% a year. That's typical. And if you take a look back at some of the numbers, we've had some ups and downs over the time, and we do have high rents. But over a 10-year period, it's about 3%. What this ordinance would do is push landlords to make that much higher than 3%. They would push it to the limit. So again, like so many well-intentioned government programs, the the exact, uh, what the proposals uh, that they put in place are intended to do have the exact opposite effect, which is this is a, you know, as you say, it's giving people hope. It's saying, we're going to constrain how much your rent can go up. But the net effect that what people will see on the ground is that their rent would go up much faster than it would otherwise. The quality of their home would be lower than it would otherwise be. And the options for alternatives would be lower because nobody's moving uh, because this creates a stagnation where people don't want to trade a rent control home for one that isn't rent control. Do I have that about right? That's right. And what it allows is the politician that proposed this to point the finger and say, oh, it's on the landlord. We put this in place. The landlord's the one that raised the rent. So they get to pass the buck as well. So now our listeners, they're either either I uh, think we're heretics or or we've um, we've uh, inspired them, perhaps activated them. Uh, I think they may be inclined to participate or at least uh, join in this um, open meeting with the uh, city councilors on Wednesday of next week. Um, how can our les- uh, listeners uh, who are interested in your organization? How can they learn more about the uh, Greater Boston Real Estate Board and the work that you do? Just go to go to our website, the Greater Boston Real Estate Board.com. You can Google the Greater Boston Real Estate Board. Um, our five divisions are there. Our website is there. Um, we'll be sort of embarking on our efforts with rent control. You know, Tuesday you will see some some ideas and some new press releases coming out from us. Um, you know, as we continue to combat this issue. And Joe, let me throw this out to you too. Um, in the city of Boston, we have 442,000 registered voters. In the last mayoral election, 127,700, almost 128,000 of them voted. That's only 28%. So the administration that's in place was only elected by less than um, three voters. So it's uh, seven out of 10, more than seven out of 10 voters didn't vote in the last election. We need people to be involved to contact their elected officials, to understand what's going on. That's way, way too many people um, not taking, becoming politically active that should be. Whether I well, agree I, with, I, your, whether I agree with your, your, you know, viewpoints or not, please be politically active. It's, it's your right. 
Indeed, this is a common theme of a hub wonk. I, I, I like to share with our listeners, the world is run by those who show up. Uh, and if you don't show up and you just imagine that Boston just happens to be a great city on its own without the active engagement of, of informed people who understand the uh, impact of, of the very real impact of, of policies like this, uh, it, we won't enjoy it forever. We can see all kinds of success stories. There are other successful cities on this in this world, and there's some miserable failures. You see, uh, you know, the disgraceful condition that say the San Francisco's or, or the Portland's. I hate to throw anybody under the bus. The Detroit's. Uh, this is all the product of policy, not 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 magic, and 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 not some third 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 source of of you know. It's the engagement of individuals. If we want Boston to be continue to be this fantastic place to live, we have to confront these uh, 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 proposals that look great uh, uh, on their on their cover, but you open the brochure and what you see is disrepair and decay. So I want to thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, this has been a great uh, eye-opener. Uh, Greg, uh, I wish you and your members uh, who are all vested, uh, have a vested interest in Boston continue to be a wonderful city. I hope you, uh, you and yours have a, a great future. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me on the show. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me for future Hubwonk episodes, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.